0: My name's Ros Ward. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. This show is recorded on Indigenous land on the island known as Australia. That always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And Welcome back, Emma and Kyle, and thanks for being here, to our um, second part of our two-part special on anarchism and some of the debates around anarchism and revolutionary Marxism. And so on this episode, we're going to um, talk about the history of anarchism, because I think talking about the history, and we've talked about the theory um, before, talking about the history now is important in terms of what does anarchism look like in practice because there have been a number of very important um, turning points even in history where anarchist theory, as it is, has been um, the motivating theoretical tendency for particular people's actions and that has given us some examples of kind of why we think (laughs) revolutionary socialism um, and Marxism um, is a much better idea, set of ideas than anarchism. So, the first one, and often uh, the figure that anarchists um, point to uh, again as a historical figure that they may not say that they a hundred percent agree with, but they think is important, is Bakunin. And well, the big, the big, the big Bakunin story is <laughs> Marx threw Bakunin out of the First International. Um, yep. Because Marx was an authoritarian, he just didn't like the fact that Bakunin disagreed and have, had it, and was anti-authoritarian, and so he he just um, kicked them out, moved the headquarters of the First International to New York, and that therefore basically would rather it didn't exist than have anarchists in it. Um, what's the kind of historical truth about that, Kyle?
1: Um. Well, I think that the historical truth of that is effectively the reverse of the story that you generally get about the First International, that the actual story of the First International is of an attempted wrecking job by Bakunin and his anarchist friends. Um, I think that this is something that has been increasingly kind of well documented, especially since the 60s, a bunch of the kind of personal correspondence of Bakunin has been coming out um, and has been confirming the argument that Marx and Engels were originally actually making um, in the International in the course of the sort of uh, 70s in particular um, of the 19th century, um, that what was going on was actually a kind of either rule or destroy sort of attempt by Bakunin um, to seize control of this organisation. So it involved, for example, um, a fairly high degree of uh, slanderous sort of propaganda against the Marxists, so a bunch of the sort of original myths about or Marx is just kind of for the continuation of hierarchy, taking control of the state, all of this sort of stuff that has become part of the mainstay of anarchism really emerges out of this period in Bakunin's attempts to justify himself and to slander Marx um, and to slander the existing leadership of the international organization. Um, But it also is a period where Bakunin just kind of lets rip all of his most lurid and quite insanely racist sort of fantasies um, about Jewish conspiracies, about... Jamming conspiracies, about just about like any kind of racial category that you can think of. At one point, he's sort of talking about a horrible, um, quote-unquote, oriental threat to the Russian motherland in a bunch of these sorts of uh, kind of letters and exchanges that he's having with his followers, attempting to firm them up um, in their attempt to c- take control of this organization. Um so there's this kind of like quite nasty sort of element to the entire debate that is left out of the anarchist account of the entire thing, which is worth, I think, taking into account. But the other element of it is that even if you just kind of leave aside all of this kind of uh, quite objectionable sort of behavior on the part of Bakunin and his followers, there is actually what they were attempting to do, uh, which was quite different to the way that it's portrayed by anarchists. Anarchists portray it as this kind of um, heroic attempt to resist a growing imposition of sort of authoritarianism within the workers' movement that Marx was a part of the sort of elected leadership of. Um, which was, you know, you've got to kind of keep in mind as well that the International Working Men's Organization was not on the scale of the kind of mass socialist organizations or workers' movements that happened uh, later on in the following decades. Um, it was actually relatively quite small and really quite uh, heterogeneous by comparison with the modern workers movement and involved all sorts of elements that I think would not really find much of a home uh, in the workers movement today, let alone at any of its kind of higher, more radical phases. Um, but nonetheless, I think like the kind of narrative that's imposed, that what Marx was trying to do was impose his kind of singular vision on this organization, which was fairly important, I think, for the nascent workers movement at the time. Um, that. And that Bakunin was just attempting to sort of resist this and push back against Marx's nasty authoritarian impulses uh, is quite absurd when you look at the actual nature of Bakunin's own organization. Not only were they kind of slanderous anti-Semites and racists, and and, uh, like it's almost being generous to just kind of leave it at that, really, um, in terms of some of the ways that they conducted themselves in that debate. Um, But not only were they all of that, they were actually a quite uh, secretive sort of cabal of uh, tight-knit leaders that had a very conspiratorial attitude to organization, an extremely elitist and kind of hostile almost attitude to the masses of people. They talked amongst themselves of a kind of invisible dictatorship um, that would be firmer for the fact that it was invisible, that it held no official titles, no official ranks, no official kind of control within the workers' movement, Um, but that nonetheless was the kind of directing and motivating force of the revolutionary movement. Um, The kind of descriptions, like, I mean, I think that gives you a bit of an indication, the kind of descriptions of what they were talking about as being their ideal and the vision that they wanted to impose on the international um, was as bad as any kind of Stalinist central committee could dream up in their worst, most nightmarish little fever dream. I think that that um, reality is that being left out of the anarchist account really, really distorts the way that people look back on that whole debate. Mm.
2: Yeah, if I can add something, sorry. <clears throat> yeah. Well, just because I think as well the way it's talked about often depoliticizes the whole thing. It's just like tit for tat. Who said what? Just a power of, struggle between yeah, two ego,
0: exactly. egotistical men. Yeah,
2: exactly. Because yeah. even based on With big beards. a lot of what Kyle said, which I think if you really if you go through and read some of the stuff that Bakunin himself said, it's so discrediting. Even just the way he organised is really conspiratorial. But also, there's content to this, like they're having an actual political debate about what a revolution should look like, what the orientation of, you know, socialists and radicals should be to the workers' movement and so on. Um, and that's, I think that matters more in some ways than who did what in the international, uh, which, because I think as well, it's just, it's a political struggle to for two different forces to... Uh, assert their politics over um an organizing body um, and i do think that marx's methods were much more actually democratic and open he wanted open debate he often just wanted to actually convince people of things uh, as compared to the anarchists who always had a really conspiratorial attitude to it but it, but like think about the debate they're having right so one of the things that uh, bakunin does in this period is um is he has this ally which kyle can probably pronounce better than me. Nekayev, Nechayev,
1: Nekayev. I think
2: Nekayev. Okay, we're going to go with that. Um, who he wrote, writes a series of pamphlets with. This guy is like a conspirator in um, in Russia, and they say this is a direct quote. I want, and this is a, um, a pamphlet that they co-authored. I want to, we want to create a new social order by concentrating all the means of social existence in the hands of our committee. That's in capital letters. And the proclamation of compulsory physical labor for everyone. And they just have this whole like. Power dream basically about what an actual transformation of society would look like that is totally elitist, has no place whatsoever for the masses of people uh, to be involved in it at all, and is all carried out by these like absolute, you know, self-sacrificing heroes like himself and Nekayev. Um, and th- then this is actually carried out in the name of the international, annoyingly for Marx, who <laughs> um, hates that. For like in Lyon in 1870, um there's a workers' kind of and poor uprising in the town and Bakunin immediately rushes to the city and him and one of his friends basically uh, take over this movement in the name of the international, even though Marx and no one else in the international actually supports what they're doing, um, and pr- basically proclaims in the town hall of Lyon that they have overthrown the state. He proclaims the abolition of the state Uh, and that the revolutionary federation of the commune has been proclaimed in its place. Now, there's no actual reality to this. The masses haven't followed him into some actual armed insurrection where they've taken over all the means of production and overthrown the bourgeoisie. This is pure fantasy. And so, literally in the next few hours, uh, the armed guards come and arrest everybody and this, you know, supposed abolition of the state amounts to absolutely nothing. But this is, you know, there's a real political debate going on there between two political uh, ideas that are, I think are just totally counterposed to each other. so that's the co- actual context. and that's more what I think we should talk about when we talk about Bakunin um, and Marx in the first international is like who was actually right? <laughs> I think Marx is just proven right by all of the um, yeah subsequent events as well.
0: And it does show up a glaring massive internal contradiction in anarchist politics, the mm. whole. We're against authoritarianism and leadership and hierarchy. <laughs> but our strategy is absolute authority and hierarchy in fact yeah authority to the point of secret authority so we're um you know and it's and it runs through Proudhon Bakun um, um Bukhanin and Bakunin, yeah. Bakunin sorry I am <laughs> mixing up two names Bakunin and Emma Goldman yeah. saying you know, we know better than everyone else. and um, um, They don't even know that we know, but we're just going to force them to our will mm. and at some point they'll realise that we we should be followed. And then it, it just, yeah, mm. it's such a glaring contradiction. Um, but let's move on to two other historical events that I think we should talk about, mm. uh, the key ones uh, in the 20th century that, anarchism is tested, and the first of those is the Russian Revolution in 1917, which obviously people can listen to our other podcasts about for more background. So we'll just assume you know the basics listening to this of the Russian Revolution. Um, So, Emma, do you want to go first on this in terms of, okay, the Bolsheviks murdered all the sailors at Kronstadt, therefore anarchism would have been a much better way to go. That's Mm. sort of it, isn't it? (laughs) But yeah, basically, yeah, there's you know
2: that. the Muckno argument as well, or just I think repeating a lot of the very popular bourgeois arguments about the Russian Revolution that Lenin led to Stalin, and this is just what happens when you have a horrible authoritarian.
0: As Robert Service, or, yeah, you
2: know. yeah, I'm sure they would love him actually. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think so. I think it's worth going over some of that, and Kyle should definitely say a bunch of about, uh, stuff about this as well because he knows a lot about it, but think like it's worth saying that we support again i don't want to go through the whole history of the russian revolution like you said people should listen to the recent podcast about that but we support the bolsheviks in 1917 1918 1919 you know as they're fighting against what is a really vicious counter-revolution that immediately springs up the second workers take power that's a really important thing to understand about this period it's not like the capitalist class ever just magically dissolves or throws in the towel they say all right where's the nearest army that i can fund to go and take power back so this is what the uh, bolsheviks are facing on top of that they're facing the total collapse of the russian economy uh, because of the world war but also because of the just you know huge ris- like problems of production in russia that are some of the reasons why people wanted to make a revolution because there wasn't enough bread or you know or anything really to survive um, so, this is the the scenario and within that, I think it's important to say that socialists should and anarchists as well should have supported uh, the Bolshevik government uh, because it was f- for two reasons really. It was the thing that was trying to preserve as much as possible um, the workers' democracy and Soviets that had taken power in 1917, that's reason number one. Reason number two, it was fighting against this vicious counter-revolution, which would have been a total bloodbath if it had um, if it had succeeded. This was about restoring the Czarist monarchy. Um, so the, I think the whole left should really have been behind the idea of uh, of fighting these uh, people. And actually, a third reason, which is very important, is that this the Bolsheviks were for spreading that revolution beyond the borders of Russia. They knew, this was not going to go well unless uh, Germany and other industrially advanced countries uh, got behind a workers revolution and had their own. So within that, I think what the anarchists role was pretty bad. There's a series of aspects to it. First of all, they were there was the good ones. Let's talk about them, Victor Serge. Um, maybe Carl can talk about him a little bit later. but there were some anarchists who thought this is actually, exactly what I thought a workers' revolution would look like. I'm going to join the Bolsheviks and and stand behind them. There were people like Emma Goldman who went there uh, in the midst of the horrors of the civil war and just whinged about it and you know kind of conducted a propaganda campaign against the Bolsheviks. But then there was a really destructive element amongst the um, anarchists. Some of them tried to, for example, assassinate various leaders of the Bolsheviks when they didn't like their policies. Some of them... Uh, just supported like pissed off peasants out in the Ukraine um, and, you know, organized a like peasant army to fight both the white counter-revolutionaries, but also the Red Army, which was trying to defend uh, this fledgling workers' state. That was not a very useful um, attitude. And then the others, uh, which is what you mentioned, Kronstadt, again, we don't have time to go into heaps of it, but they were supporting again, pissed off peasants who were increasingly annoyed by the, not just annoyed, you know, absolutely suffering under the conditions of civil war that were imposed by what was necessary to defend the Workers' Revolution. Um, But also their rebellions, like the Kronstadt Rebellion, could have been and was being uh, potentially used to uh, bolster the position of the white army, the counter-revolutionaries, who wanted to basically march on Petrograd and overthrow the whole revolution. So, I think the anarchists just played a mostly again, there were some really great exceptions, but played a really destructive role.
0: Yep, Kyle, you want to speak about um uh, Victor
1: Serge. Uh I would love to wax lyrical about Victor Serge, really. I could do an entire podcast about the guy. But we should um, actually, yeah. yeah. I think he does actually he really represents something, I think, about the nature of the Bolsheviks' position in the course of the Civil War that I mean, to talk about some of the devastation, like the scale of the destruction of society that is really going on fairly early on in the Civil War is quite catastrophic. In January in 1918, in Petrograd, which is the kind of core of the revolution, its real heart, where most of the kind of leading forces of it uh, had taken root uh, and led the revolution to victory in October in the previous year. Um, By January 1918, the food supply has dropped so low that the Rations that people are receiving are a quarter of the uh, caloric minimum survival caloric intake that the average laborer requires. Mm-hmm. So they're not—they're getting a quarter of the amount of food that they need to survive and maintain themselves, um, let alone thrive or you know have any kind of political life. Um, I think that kind of—that's fairly early on. That's January 1918. The further that the Civil War goes on, the more that you have a kind of enlargement of the destruction that had already been happening during the First World War. So you're already, because of the First World War, large sections of Russia's train tracks uh, had been destroyed. And you, you know, if you're going to have a functioning economy over an eri- a territory as vast as Russia, um, you're going to need some means of moving large supplies of things from one place to another. So train tracks are actually fairly important. They've dropped to the point where... Uh, you know, in some of the major cities, in Petrograd, for example, uh, because of the declining rail transport, um, steel production has dropped from to a 60th of the level that it had been prior to the First World War. Not one in six, one in 60 of the level that it had been prior to the First World War. So, really quite catastrophic kind of social and economic um, problems that are emerging out of that. If you you think about that, like the steel industry, this is where some of the leading battalions of the working class are employed. Some of the most revolutionary, organized, kind of solidly Marxist, solidly kind of um, uh, class-conscious sections of the working class in Russia are concentrated in a bunch of these sorts of heavy industries that have just been completely decimated by the civil war and by this conflict. So you've got a society that is in a real state of just decay and destruction um, that the Bolsheviks are desperately trying to hold together by whatever means they can. And as workers uh, are increasingly kind of dispersed, um, killed off uh, and rendered effectively quite powerless by the breakdown of the industrial economy within Russia, they increasingly just have to turn to the kinds of means that they would have abhorred, like that they would never have dreamed of turning to actually before the revolution itself took off. So they start to redeploy a bunch of the old czarist Bureaucracy, some of the kind of specialists in statecraft and industrial management um, that are necessary to both reconstruct the kind of industrial economy and maintain um, a some semblance of revolutionary power within Russia, even as its kind of social base is starting to decay really quite seriously. And anarchists don't anarchists look at this um, today, and they see this as just being kind of this sin of the Bolsheviks, this thing that kind of is a result of this authoritarian kind of axioms of Marxism, that they actually just want to use the state to transform society or whatever. But anarchists at the time didn't really see it that way. Well, some anarchists at the time didn't really see it that way. Emma Goldman continued to see it that way, even though she arrived in Russia in 1920 at really the very, very kind of lowest point of this kind of decay and destruction like there are there are parts of russia at this point where cannibalism is re-emerging as a result of the the degree of kind of destruction that's happened Uh, and she still sees everything that she sees wrong with the society that she's encountering as being the fault of bolshevism and marxism but there are also people like victor serge who arrives a lot earlier actually than goldman does um, and who see the bolsheviks for what they were that they were like despite The kind of breakdown of the social structures that had emerged out of october that were promising this liberatory transformation of society that the bolsheviks represented an attempt to hold on to the kind of political principles of the revolution this attempt to hold on to the principle that they could never compromise with the kind of reactionary forces that would have effectively imposed a variety of fascism had they won in the civil war i think the white armies Um, That they held on to the principle that the only way that the revolution could really be saved from its horrific kind of condition was if other revolutions took off in other countries. And so, therefore, devoted enormous amounts of their resources, enormous amounts of their time to trying to see that happen. Um, And that they, in the meantime, um, needed to kind of do everything that they possibly could to hold Russian society together and just keep it from sort of collapsing. He saw that that was actually the necessary task of the revolution at that time and he sided with the Bolsheviks for that reason and he like you know Serge has all these different kind of moments throughout his life um, where he kind of goes back and forth between being relatively more or less critical of the Bolsheviks in that period um, but I think he still overall sticks to that kind of commitment that he forms uh, when he arrives um, so I think that is kind of um, a quite important thing to say about the anarchists but otherwise yeah there are all sorts of destructive things that the anarchists uh, know that the anarchists do besides the kind of good ones like victor serge i guess um there are attempted uprisings um there are attempted assassination plots like emma said um but it's not like this is coming from a place of kind of posing a serious alternative to bolshevism um it's actually coming from a place of real powerlessness that because of the success of bolshevism i think Um, the anarchists are extremely marginal to the workers' movement, to any kind of social force that could pose itself as an alternative to the Bolshevik government or to um, the counter-revolutionaries. And so what they're effectively just kind of doing is flailing in the dark in the course of this massive social catastrophe with no alternative that they can seriously offer to anybody other than the kind of idealist slogans and this attempt to counterpose their purity, the purity of their principles um, to the awful state um, of the objective reality that they're facing and that it's impotence that I think really leads to a bunch of the kind of destructive role that the anarchists play at various points.
0: I think that's an excellent answer because what you have gone through there is a whole kind of, again, a, um, a materialist explanation of the conditions in Russia during the during the revolution, during the civil war in a way that... Um, you know, the kind of shorthand of the anarchist arguments, again, just relying on people believing what they've been taught at school in the same way <laughs> as the right-wing historians and the pro-capitalist historians and all of the international forces at the time wanted to stop people from thinking that there was anything positive in the course of events of the Russian revolution. And, you know, it it's such a, again, a frustrating um, discussion to have often because, you know, there is none of that historical context. There's none of that um, material analysis. There's not even a a questioning of who um, the forces were on the ground, what their politics were, what the debates were. It's just, again, you know, um, the Bolsheviks were just power hungry. They knew from the start that they just wanted to, you know, um take control of the state and wield it for themselves and that was that's what was wrong with um the situation in russia so i think that uh covers it really well and actually people should listen to sandra bloodworth's um how is it how or why was the russian revolution defeated anyway it's a it's a previous episode of this podcast that goes through a lot more of that (laughs) Okay, so let's uh, finish the historical part with the Spanish Civil War and this is perhaps even more useful example um, because the anarchists played a much more influential role so as you said, in Russia there was sort of an impotence um, and a lack of anarchist organization so Uh, you know, maybe they could say they didn't have the capacity somehow, Though you know, question of organization again. But in Spain, you get a sense um, from the historical events that the anarchists were actually key to determining the course of these um, events as part of the Civil War or revolutionary process unfolding in Spain in 1936. So, Emma, um, Hmm. what – what did the anarchists do um, when they had this opportunity, I guess, to, in some ways, and in actually some um, small cases, to start to potentially destroy the Spanish state?
2: Yeah, I think it's a great example for those reasons. Like, this is the best of the anarchists, and it's where they have the most influence that they probably ever had and ever will have anywhere. Um, they And they were... When I say they're the best of the anarchists, I mean, they had a real orientation to the working class. They had like mass trade unions that millions of workers were, um, were involved in, the CNT, uh, and they also had their own political party, although that, you know, would never run in elections or whatever, but the, um, the FAI, uh, you know, so they, they were, in control of this movement in many ways, um, or at least a very, very important influence in it. And they were much better anarchists than some of the ones that we've been talking about, like Emma Goldman or whatever. I think what they do, again, we cannot go over the whole history of the Spanish Civil War. People should read about it. It is really fascinating. But basically you have a, um, a Republican sort of social, Democratic-ish government, uh, a coalition of left forces that there's an attempt to overthrow it by some fascists essentially Franco um, and this decays into a situation of civil war so this is kind of a, a a very important moment for the working class of Spain which has been radicalized a lot by struggles in the previous years by its participation in the anarchist movement and the trade unions and so on so a lot of them take up arms against uh, Franco's forces all across the country and particularly in the heartland of the working class which is really Catalonia um, To boil down what the anarchists do wrong in this period, I think, is to say that, first of all, they're not interested at at all, again, because of their special anarchist principles about being against all centralised forms of state authority. They're not interested in the working class uh, actually forming some kind of Soviet workers' council, centralised form of... um, of workers' government that is able to actually make decisions and carry them out and I think, you know, could have potentially won the civil war on that basis. So, even though you have really a total decay of what is capitalist power in this region, you don't have a situation like emerged in Russia where the alternative to that is actually built, you know, workers' power is actually built Um, And this is in spite of the fact that workers are kind of pushing towards that themselves quite naturally. They start to organise a lot of parts of production themselves. They, um, you know, in some cases start to work with peasants to take land away from landlords and so on. So it's a really radical moment, but it's kind of pissed up against the wall. Um, And... One of the key moments uh, in this is when the Spanish anarchists in Catalonia are basically offered power, not out of the kindness of the hearts of the um, the bourgeois state within Catalonia, but because in effect on the ground the anarchist trade unions basically run everything, (laughs) you know, because that is the nature of workers' power. It starts to take over all of society. And they say, no, of course not. We're against all power. We're against all governments. We would never do that. So they eschew that. But, of course, the state doesn't just disappear just because you say you don't want to form an alternative state to it. It doesn't, you know, just because there is this huge ferment in society, it doesn't mean that the capitalist state or, importantly, those bourgeois forces that represent it, like the Republicans in this case, you know, liberal bourgeois elements or uh, also in this case Stalinists who much more wanted to just restabilize society, they don't disappear uh, and so, they regrouped, they became powerful again and really took control of the um, the movement against, the, basically, the fight against the fascists. Uh, and faced with this, um, I guess, growing weakness that the anarchists and the trade unions had, um, seeing their enemies grow strong before them meant that they had no, they felt like they had no choice but to actually submit act- to the thing that they hate the most, right, state power. So, in a kind of odd twist, or what seems like an odd twist, they actually joined a bourgeois republican government and helped that government disarm uh, a lot of the militias of the working class um, and essentially form a professional army that was meant to defeat the fascists. And we know, sadly, the history of that, which is that because that social revolution of working class power was put on hold, actually the fascists weren't defeated and they were in power for, t- you know, decades afterwards. Um So, an absolute tragedy and one of the best people to read about this, I think, is Trotsky who at the time was screaming apoplectic, you know, (laughs) somewhere else in the world. I don't know where he was at that time, somewhere in Europe probably, but was absolutely devastated by what was happening and could see that both the actions of the anarchists, but, you know, obviously, of course, of the Stalinists as well, were um, not only not going to make a workers revolution, but were also going to allow the fascists to win inevitably um and that's what happened. So yeah, they it's so the worst of both worlds really, they um the weaknesses of the kind of anarchist obsession with not, you know, having any authority and centralization was a serious weakness in their ability to fight against um the ruling class. But equally then when faced with the we're faced with that reality, they just ditched all of those um, those principles and joined one of the most Hideous bourgeois governments that played a role in making sure that workers couldn't carry out this radical social revolution and defend themselves against the fascists,
0: and ironically flipped over to being told what to do by Stalinists. I know. Yeah, exactly. This is like the ultimate, yeah, Yeah. betrayal, really. Um, And yeah, as Emma said, um, we should have an episode on the Spanish Civil War, actually, and um, definitely worth a period of history worth reading about. Again, a lot of uh, shorthand explanations from anarchists about really, if you want to get to the bottom of it, you should um, read more on that and we'll put some links in the notes for this episode and the Russian Revolution and um, mm. those debates in the First International and what was the actual content of them. Okay, I think we should just um, conclude and, and we've um, now talked about uh, – the theoretical differences, we've talked about the historical differences and debates, but one of the things that comes up sometimes with people um, today talking about anarchism and, you know, we haven't even gone into sort of um, platformist anarchism, um, syndicalism, these different varieties that may seem closer in some regards to um, revolutionary Marxism, but people will say, okay, We know that Marxists don't think anarchism is very good, but does it really matter at this point in history, you know, if we have some of these differences? um, Is there not more that we agree on? We're Um, anti-capitalist. Is it not sectarian to just say that you disagree with anarchist politics? How would you respond to that, Kyle, given you've seen kind of both sides of this?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean... For starters, I would say that in general, when that argument is being trotted out, it's a fairly defensive thing to say, like, well, why would you go on about our differences? Why would you go on about the things that divide us? Don't Can't we all just kind of be united in the one same movement? I think it kind of indicates a kind of unwillingness to face a bunch of, I think, very important, actually, political differences that should be fought out um, and should be discussed. Uh, I think that in the case of anarchism in particular, well, we've talked about some of the way that it kind of plays out. If the anarchist ideas, which I think despite the fact that they um, have this kind of veneer of radicalism and this veneer of being really kind of um, out there and kind of unpopular, um, they can have a kind of... Um, uh, that can seem quite common sense, I guess, particularly to people who are moving for the first time into some variety of kind of radical opposition to the system. And you see that all the time in particular in kind of student movements. Um, You saw that sort of briefly after the GFC um, in the movement of the squares in Europe, um, in in Occupy, um, in a bunch of these kind of political movements that this anarchism Um, not in a fully-fledged form necessarily, you're not necessarily getting all these people who are kind of signing up to become anarchists or join anarchist collectives or anything like that, but that anarchist kind of ideas can become a kind of common sense um, within political movements um, when they're first sort of taking off. Um, And that this can actually be extremely destructive. I mean, we have this kind of historical example of the Spanish Civil War, right, like where you've reached the highest kind of level of a serious confrontation between the workers' movement uh, and the state authorities and the existing ruling class on one level, but that that kind of um, confrontation is not taken to its ultimate conclusion of the destruction of state authority and the sweeping aside of the ruling class and the kind of establishment of a worker's power that's capable of both defeating anybody who wants to kind of uh, fuck with them, um, but also Uh, to start the sort of initial uh, phases of a transformation of society that would render ruling classes and states superfluous forever. Um, The anarchists were not capable of kind of taking that struggle to its final conclusion, even in a situation where they were at their strongest and politically at their best, like Emma said, like embedded in the workers' movement in command of these really quite impressive unions, um, having amongst their ranks some of the more impressive worker militants in Spain, um, I think all, even with all of those advantages, um, the political problems with anarchism meant that they uh, ultimately stumbled on the kind of final hurdle on one level. Um, but this also plays out in much smaller movements, in movements that are kind of um, you know, far, far more distant from that kind of ultimate conflict between the exploited classes and the oppressed and the ruling class um, than the Spanish Civil War was, um, and the movement of the squares. Um, The Occupy movement, I think the fact that they were so easily kind of, ultimately, particularly Occupy, ultimately were so easily kind of contained and dispersed by the state, the state authority that the anarchists are so sort of hostile to, um, actually kind of actually really flowed from anarchist politics and from the dominance of those kinds of ideas uh, within that movement. A refusal to seriously confront the power of the state and attempt to kind of avoid it on one level. Um, this kind of organisational fetishism of being anti-leadership and being opposed to anything as authoritarian as kind of democratic decision-making, which combines that sort of virtue of being a majoritarian kind of doctrine that can also be relatively flexible and kind of adapted to a movement that needs to make decisions on the fly and far more than the kind of alternatives that anarchism uh, provides. A bunch of these kinds of um, uh, problems, I think, are actually a stumbling block, not only to kind of reaching that final ultimate confrontation and displeasure and destruction of capitalism, but even of just kind of moving beyond the initial phases of a movement that is kind of trending in that direction, that anarchism can be a real hurdle, a real obstacle to all of this. This doesn't mean that you don't work with anarchists. It doesn't mean that you don't kind of Um, join with anarchists and kind of common struggle when that is called for and particularly um, if they are playing uh, like for a moment at the very least a progressive and radical role and that they're taking things forward on some level but i think that just to kind of ignore the theoretical um, differences and to ignore the kind of things that separate our politics from theirs um, is to potentially fall into the trap of allowing those differences and the things that i think are very wrong with anarchism to stifle and stymie any attempt to go Beyond, yeah, beyond just kind of a elemental kind of um, revolt against capitalism towards something that could actually destroy it forever.
0: Mm. Emma, any final remarks?
2: Well, just a final remark. Although I might butcher the quote, but I just uh, I really like Trotsky's uh, description of anarchism that it's like a raincoat with holes in it. So. It always works until you actually need it when it starts raining. Um, And the point of that little metaphor is that anarchism seems like it has a logical consistency when you're just talking about abstract theories. I reject everything. I reject the state. I reject, you know, all authority, all leadership or whatever. But in practice, I think that's contentless because the real problem with society is that we live in a class society where the majority of people are exploited by a capitalist ruling class. That is the actual problem we need to confront and face uh, and in practice overcome. Uh, And I really think the Spanish Civil War shows you that when you try and use anarchism to deal with that problem, you end up putting up all these sort of silly abstract principles and then having to, in the face of reality, actually um, ditch them like a crappy raincoat with holes in it. You have to get rid of them. Uh, and so, you know, one of the uh, groups that kind of came out of the Spanish Civil War, the Friends of Durruti, who started to move, I think, a bit closer to Marxist and sort of Trotskyist critiques of what the anarchists had done in Spain, um, they could kind of recognize a series of the problems with uh, how the anarchists had conducted themselves. Uh, and I think that demonstrates that, you know, there is just a real impractical, uh, impractical nature of these ideas. Um, and in terms of why we're for pointing them out and having this debate, um, it's the same reason we're having debates about everything. We want to actually overthrow capitalism. Anarchism can't do that and – think organising around Marxist ideas can, (laughs) or at least, you know, gives us the best fighting chance to do so. So, yeah, we should keep having debates like this. There's so much more to say um, about all of the kind of points of disagreement between anarchism and Marxism, but yeah, it's a good start.
0: Yeah. If you're an anarchist listening to this, and you are jumping up and down saying this is all slander and lies, we would actually (laughs) welcome you on Red Flag Radio to have a debate with Emma or Kyle or Um, anyone else really Um, because yeah we're for democratic open discussions (laughs) to try to convince people of um, the best set of ideas we don't want people to wear a raincoat with holes in it thank you Emma and Kyle for being on Red Flag Radio and for all of your insights on this topic it's been fantastic and no worries it's been awesome pleasure yeah, good. Um so, <laughs> you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win.